<laughs> Boy, ain't I funny this evening. Now, um, are you washed in the blood? Hymn number 330. And Revelation 7:14 says, They have washed their robes and made them white. How about that? In the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. It used to be when I was in children's church many, many years ago here, there used to be a, a red cellophane. Some of the candy wrappers were red, and you could look in it at uh, like something black or dark, and it would be white like snow, and that symbolized the blood of Jesus looking at your sin turning it white as snow. And that's how we talk to them little kids. I wonder to this day how many remembered that. But we used that as an object lesson. I thought that was good. Are you washed in the blood? I told you I was going to preach a long time. Go ahead. <laughs> we'll sing all four verses. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's sign? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? When the bridegroom cometh Will your robes be white? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Will your soul be ready for the mansion's bright? And be washed in the blood of the Lamb Are you washed in the blood In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Amen. Remain standing. Hymn number 511. 511. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. 
Amen. It should, it should all of us. All that thrills our soul should be Jesus. Christ is all and in all. Colossians tells us in Colossians 3.11. All, Christ is all and in all. That about sums it up, don't it? That completes it. That's a total. Two and two equals four. All is Christ. Amen. We'll sing all five verses. Cheer the heart like Jesus by his presence all divine true and tender pure and precious oh how blessed to call him mine all that thrills my soul is Jesus he is more than life to me soul is Jesus. 
Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of ten thousand in my blessed Lord I see. Amen. You may be seated. And now our pastor. All right, well, I'm going to do my best to preach shorter than J.L., all right? Uh, I tell you what, this morning, he was, he, there was one point during the service, I thought he was just going to go ahead and let her rip. I was going to let him, too. It was good. Anyways, well, grateful that we can be back tonight. Take your Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. I mean, looking at verses 17 through 22, this is going to be our, our springboard, our main focus tonight. We'll be here in a moment. Uh, we'll be going backwards uh, to Genesis for a moment and then earlier on in Exodus uh, just for a couple things to, to help us out tonight. Uh, but we're going to be looking at God's will is the wilderness. Not necessarily just God's will in the wilderness, but God's will is the wilderness in this case. Uh, look at verse 17 through 22. We'll read it and we'll pray. We'll ask the Lord for His strength, for His help tonight to understand His Word. It says, And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest peradventure the people repent when they see war, and they return to Egypt. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up, uh, harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. And they took away. Then they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead the uh, to uh, lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Let us pray, Lord. We want to come to you this night. We're grateful that we can sing. Uh, about the, the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us, that saves us. And Lord, it's still that blood that pleads on our behalf uh, each moment of our day. Uh, Lord, uh, until we get to see you face to face, Lord, may we long and look forward to that day, but as well be obedient to know your word, to trust your word, to trust uh, what you're doing even in the middle of wilderness. Uh, Lord, regardless of what state we're in tonight, God, we pray that we would have our hearts and minds focused upon you. I pray for strength physically, spiritually to preach, teach your word tonight, and God, that you would give us what we need tonight as we look to you, Lord, that you'd be glorified and honored in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. As we see this passage, we, we just sort of to help catch us up a little bit. How many of y'all have ever heard of Egypt before? How many of y'all have ever heard of Israel before? All right, well, in case you're wondering, Israel, uh, the people of Israel were slaves there in Egypt, uh, and here's what we're going to see is that God has delivered them. How many of y'all ever heard of the ten plagues before? All right, so we're doing good tonight. You guys are all passing Sunday school Bible class right now. You guys are doing great. So here, here's what we got. God delivers his people from Egypt. And where is he taking them to? Anybody? Tony will give you a dollar if you get it right. The promised land. That's right. All right, you see Tony after class. All right. <laughs> all right. He's going to be making a beeline for the exit sign. Now, here's what we see. God said, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to take you out. And I'm going to take you to a promised land. Now, here's what we find, though. God is the one that leads him through the wilderness to get to the promised land. Sometimes we think that the wilderness only happened because the children of Israel disobeyed. That's not right. The children of Israel stayed in the wilderness 
because they disobeyed. Now, here's what we think. We think the wilderness is always a punishment. but Sometimes it's a protection. And that's what we're going to find tonight. Now, as we look here, all right, hold your place here in Exodus 13. Turn with me backwards to Genesis 15 for a moment. You say, what does Genesis 15 have to do with Exodus 13? It's got everything to do with it. Here's the first thing we're going to see tonight with God's will, uh, that God's will is the wilderness, is God's promise of deliverance. God had promised this deliverance long before they even needed deliverance. Before the people of Israel are even established, God promises, one, that they're going to be established, two, that they're going to go uh, and be uh, enslaved, captive, and then that God is going to deliver them, and they're going to come out rich on the other side, and He's going to deliver them to a better place, to a promised land. And so here we find, in Genesis 15, perhaps one of the most important chapters in understanding all of, all of the Bible, by the way, uh, because of the Abrahamic covenant and its uh, its conditions, and as well as, as its unconditions, if you will, and an establishing of people, and what this means eschatologically. Uh, if you come to Wednesday night Bible study for Genesis, we'll get to Genesis 15 sometime, all right? We'll get there, all right? I promise. And when we do, we're going to spend some good time in it. We're going to look, but I want us to look here tonight, Genesis uh, 15, verse 13 and 14. Basically, to, to get us to where we are here, verse 13 and 14, God has told Abram, at this time, he's not yet Abraham, if you will, but he's Abram. And what he tells him to do is to gather uh, some animals. Uh, we're going to make sacrifice. And what uh, Abram would have done is he would have either heaped them up and more than likely two piles, which would have been a, a figure eight sort of uh, idea of walking and passing through these things, the way a covenant would have been done. Now, what is happening is that Abram believes that he's going to be making covenant with God. But what instead happens is that God puts him to sleep and makes a covenant with him and for him. Abram does not do the covenant walk. God himself does. God alone does. Meaning that the whole Abrahamic covenant is not dependent upon Abraham. That's the beauty of our salvation, by the way. That's the beauty of our sanctification. That's the beauty of our glorification. It is that it is not dependent upon our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness to fulfill his word. Now look here, verse 13. He said unto Abram, now, we'll back up for just a moment here. Go back, go back verse 12, in case you didn't believe me. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Are you going to be able to do much of a covenant walk if you're in a deep sleep? No. If you're in a deep sleep, you know what you're going to do is snoring. That's it. That's all you got. And here's what happens. He, it says, and lo, in the horror of great darkness fell upon him. Now, that's a, that's a frightening description, isn't it? You and I see this as some sort of horrible image and frightening image and it should sort of make the the hair on the back of our neck tingle and stand up a little bit because what we find is that God is now overwhelming this place of sacrifice it is God's very presence that is descending upon this place to establish an everlasting covenant so yes this is a big deal verse 13 he said unto Abram know of a surety you think God wants him to trust him here do you think God means business here do you think God is making a promise here absolutely He's telling Abram, not only can you have a surety, but he's telling him, you'd better be sure of these things. Why? Because I'm talking here. God is speaking, and when God speaks, we can be sure and must be sure of it. That's what faith does, is it applies God's word as surety. It says, and he said unto Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great 
substance. Here we find God's promise of deliverance long before there's even a people called Israel, long before there's even a, a, a man named Moses, long before there's a, a staff, long before there's plagues, long before there's any of these things. God is dealing with Abram here, and He tells Abram, not only am I going to establish land, seed, and a blessing in this covenant with you, but I'm going to take that seed of yours that's going to come from your loins, that's going to come from you and your wife, and they're going to go down into a land, and they're going to serve them there. They're going to be afflicted there for 400 years, and that nation whom they shall serve, I'm going to judge them, and then afterward, your seed, my people, will come out with great riches and substance. In this Abrahamic covenant, God not only promises that a people will come through Abraham, but they will also here notice the phrases. He promises they shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. He promises Egypt. Notice he promises that there's going to be an Egypt before he promises that there's even going to be uh, the promised land in Israel and, and, and all this time of rest. He says then that they will be slaves, shall serve them. You and I go, well, why can't we just skip over to the promised land? Why can't we just have Abram wake up from this time of the covenant being given to him without verse 13 and 14 taking place, without the promise of being slaves and his descendants being enslaved, especially considering Abram had waited and worked so hard to even get to that point of being able to have a promised son. And can't we just have Abram and his boy and, and all his grand youngins settle down in the promised land and build a nice big fence around the promised land and not have to worry about anybody and then live happily ever after like the fairy tales? That sounds good to us, doesn't it? But God's got a greater plan. Why? Because His glory is displayed not necessarily, it's always displayed, but it's displayed certainly all the more when everything doesn't go according to our plan. Because what we find is that God's glory is displayed when it goes according to His plan. And this is His plan. That God's people, that His own people, that His covenant people are going to go into a land that they don't belong, that does not belong to them, and they will suffer there, and then God will bring them out, refine them, and even build them. Notice, they go in at the end of Genesis, and there ain't but a hundred of them, right? Not, not even, I think maybe seven. Actually, I think it's 70. I think 70 of them go into Egypt at the end of Genesis, including uh, Jacob and, and his sons, that whole thing, right? They go in. Because Joseph was ruler at the time. And then what do we find? How many come out during the Exodus? Millions. You think God had a purpose for them going down to Egypt? Of course. Furthermore, he says, the nation whom they shall serve will I judge. God promises not only that He will deliver His people, but He will deliver His people from those who were cruel uh, and had held them captive, that He will judge them, not just because they held His people captive, because you would look and you and I would go, well, how is that fair to Egypt? God promised that this would happen, so God is already going, well, I'm going to judge them for something that they have no control over. They had every bit of control over it. That's the issue. Is that the Egyptians were a pagan and idolatrous and a blasphemous people who cursed and beat down and broke down the Israelites. They eventually viewed them as nothing. They viewed them literally just as slaves. And slaves have never truly been viewed as other human beings, let alone a whole other people group like the Israelites were. It goes on and we see, then he says, Afterward they shall come out with great substance. God will turn their captivity into prosperity in delivering them. So here's what we see, that providence is working God's will for His people 
even in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, choosing to go through the wilderness is what God's providence does. That's what God's promise does, is that I'm going to take them through a wilderness. I'm going to take them through difficulties. But I will bring them out of such. Now you and I go, well, if we've got the good promise on the other end, can't we just skip to the good part? How many of you have ever read the first chapter of a book and then just read the last chapter of it without ever reading the middle portion? Maybe, yeah, maybe to get through a test, maybe, right? C-spot run or something, I don't know. Who knows what it was, right? But here's the thing. If you like to read, you ask any reader, if they read the first chapter and the last chapter and not the middle, they're going to say, well, of course not. That would ruin everything. You have to read the beginning to, to prepare yourself for the middle to get to the ending. Now, here's what happens. The whole reason why on bookshelves you go to these novels and on the back, it's got a, maybe a picture, it's got maybe some recommendations, or uh, then it's got maybe the, a nice little paragraph about what the novel's going to be about, maybe it introduces some characters, a little bit of the plot, gets you intrigued, right? And yes, you can and do judge books by their cover, but then you judge it more so, not by chapter one, but by chapters three, five, seven, that it keeps your interest and you keep going on along. So that way, by the time you make it to the very last chapter, you're going, oh, I wish this book kept going. But you and I, we look and we go, well, I don't wish that suffering would keep going. I don't wish that wilderness would keep going. Certainly not. We'd like to jump to the live happily ever after part. But what we find is that there was not going to be a true happily ever after for them except through this time of wilderness. Now, they prolonged their wilderness journey. This was Israel's doing that it lasted 40 years. Not God's. It was the people's disobedience. God's will was to take them through, to, through the wilderness for their protection. He had promised these things, and because God's promise was sure to them for hundreds of years before the exodus even occurs, they should have trusted Him. You and I, we look back at Israel and we go, wow, those dummies, how did they not see it? And yet how many times have God... Has He told us in His Word, and we know His Word, and yet we just can't quite get it through our, not even our skull, but I believe through our, our stony heart sometimes that refuses to believe God at His Word. Now turn with me over to Exodus 3. God's promise is not just given to Abraham, but hundreds of years later to Moses. Moses there in chapter 3 after he has gone into his own wilderness You think God uses a wilderness yet? Of course He does. As a matter of fact, perhaps one of the most pivotal moments in Moses' life takes place here in the wilderness. The backside of a desert. And here in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord reveals Himself to Moses not in the palace, not there in Egypt, not not beside the Nile or some grand sunset or sunrise. He takes Him to the backside of the desert. You know what the desert is? It's the wilderness. It's the middle of nowhere. It's Dugspur. It's Willis. It's, it's out there, right? <laughs> no one lives out there right now, do you? Anybody? A couple of you? Okay. It, the idea is that there's nothing there except for Moses, his father-in-law, some sheep, and a burning bush that isn't consumed. Look with me in verse number 4. And when the Lord saw he turned aside to see, God called unto him from out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. 
He said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. When's the last time that you were in the wilderness and you thought this is holy ground? Probably not. Matter of fact, when you go out in the wilderness or you go on a hiking trail, you know what you put on? You put on shoes. Matter of fact, you good, put on good walking shoes or walking boots. Why? Because you want to protect your feet. Here's what we find. When it, we talk about our own spiritual wilderness, the place of your suffering is perhaps one of the most holy places and times in your life because it is God separating you from the world, separating you unto Himself, and doing a work in you to reveal Himself to you so that you would know and trust Him more. That's the idea here. Now, this is a holy ground, not just because God's presence is there, but because of the work that God's presence is doing in the middle of all this. He brings him here and he says, take your shoes off. And moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Moses hid his face or he was afraid to look upon God. That's the right response, by the way. He was afraid. Why? Because he knows that he is just a mortal man and he's looking at, at God who has covenanted and promised and he feels totally uh, ashamed and uh, afraid, as he describes here. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt. He saw it before they even went to Egypt. He saw it before Joseph was ever sold into slavery and went down into Egypt in the first place. He saw it. It says this, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God not, not only merely promises to deliver them, but He says, I know their very sorrows. I know their heart. I know their motivation. I know their tears. I know their abuse. I know everything that they're going through. And I'm acting on their behalf. As I promised your father Abraham years and years ago. It says, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land unto a good land and a large. Now, isn't that interesting? And in, in a large land when Israel is one of the smallest uh, countries that there is, one of the smallest lands it is. Yet, in the eyes of God, there's no bigger land. It says, Unto a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is coming to me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I want you to know this. If Moses never had the, the killing that he had there in Egypt and fled to the wilderness, I don't know that he's meeting God in this fashion. I don't know that he's getting the one who's going to be chosen to go and deliver the people. What do we find here? God's will is the wilderness. He not merely uses it, he not merely has it as some sort of plan B or C. It is His plan to prepare His people for the promised land. What is this earth to you and I? It's not the promised land, is it? If this is as good as it gets, right? Take my name off the list, right? This is not it. This is not heaven, is it? This is not even close to it. We find what is this place? A wilderness. There's thorns and thistles and briars. There is nothing but desert land and it feels as if we remain parched and on walking on dry, dusty ground waiting for the promised land to come. When will the promised land come? When we leave this wilderness behind. We are pilgrims and we must return back to a pilgrim mentality. I'm not talking about pilgrims of wearing 
uh, buckled hats and buckled shoes and eating turkey. Now, turkey's good. We'll keep that part. Forget the buckled shoes and hats. But I'm talking about pilgrim mentality of understanding that this world is not our home. I'm just a passing through. Now, we have to uh, have this understanding because if we don't, we get our roots too deep in this world and we begin to make the wilderness our home. And that's ultimately what Israel did in the wilderness. Israel had begun to be dissatisfied with God, making them satisfied with the wilderness. But then the more satisfied they became with the wilderness, the more dissatisfied they they became with the wilderness, to where then they hated everything. What a miserable existence they lived for 40 years to where a whole generation had to die out before they would go in and be able to go into the promised land because of their disobedience. We'll go over into verse 13. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel, and they say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. That's his name. The I am. The existing one, the self-existing one, the ever-existing one, the present right now existing one, the all-knowing one, the all-powerful one, God Almighty, the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of deliverance, the God of heaven. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto him, unto you. And God said, moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial unto all generations. Go and gather all the elders of Israel together and say unto them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared unto me saying, I have surely visited you and have seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites into a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go. We beseech thee three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And he goes on, he says, And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. <laughs> Isn't that funny? When you and I get, it, get to where we think we know something, we say, Well, I'm sure. Well, God here says, I am sure. Now, if you think God is sure, do you think it's a done deal? Yes. God is sure long before the conversation with Moses and Pharaoh ever happens that Pharaoh won't let it take place. And he, then he says in verse 20, And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when you go, you shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and uh, of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver, jewels of gold and raiment, and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. That's the promise of God and deliverance. Now, turn with me back to Exodus 13. Now that we've got that base covered of the Abrahamic covenant and of God speaking to Moses and making that promise reassured there in the wilderness, here's what we find. Chapter 13, verse 17. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest peradventure the people uh, repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. This was God's plan all along. This was His promise to deliver them and this is how He's going to do it. Here's what we find. As we move forward into verse 17 through 20, 
we're going to see not only God's promise of deliverance, but God's providence in deliverance. Look at God's providence here. How do you believe that God is sovereign? Believe that God's in control? That's simply what that means, right? How many of you believe that God is providential? That means that He works all things out for good, who, to the good of those that love Him who are called according to His purpose. This means this, that we say often here, or at least that I say often here, I don't know what you say, but I know what I say. Right? He works it for our good and His glory. That's the providence of God. Let me ask you this. Does God care about the big things in your life? Of course. Does He care about the little things in your life? Absolutely. If we didn't believe either one of those things, then God would not be providential. Could you imagine this? Having and serving and giving and worshiping a God who doesn't care about the little things in your life? I wouldn't want to do that, would you? You see, this is, that was the gods of Egypt. They didn't care about the little things of the Egyptians' lives. As a matter of fact, they said as long as they keep worshiping us, right? then we'll send some rain, we'll send some sun, we'll send some drought, we'll be angry, we'll send some wind, we'll let them grow some crops, and then we'll crush them every now and again just to remind them who's boss, right? That was the idea of every pagan culture. God says, my thoughts are many toward you. God cares deeply. It is providence that leads them in the wilderness not around the wilderness. It is providence of God that leads you through suffering and trials in the wildernesses of wilderness, wildernesses? wilderness of your life. Whatever wilderness you have been in, and each one of us has always been in one at some point or another, think of it this way. <laughs> don't raise your hand for this, all right? Not that we don't want to know, but you don't need to, all right? You might ask yourself right now, how many of you are in the wilderness right now? Don't raise your hand, all right? Not that we don't care, but we don't want anyone to feel bad out there tonight. We don't want that. Now, if you're in the wilderness right now, you know what that means? You're one step closer to not being in it. That's the part you're looking forward to. Now, how many of you are not in the wilderness right now? Well, you're one step closer to being in the wilderness. That's exactly what this life is. Why? Because this life in this flesh, in this mortal body, is a life being a pilgrim in the wilderness. So if you're not in it, get ready to be. If you are in it, you won't be forever. You won't be in it forever. The wilderness is just a season. And think about this. Our life is just a season. It's a vapor and a wind. It's here today, gone tomorrow. This life that we have is a wilderness. But notice what we're going to see about the wilderness. It's by God's providence and God's presence is through every single bit of it. I would rather live in the wilderness with God than live in a mansion with the devil. Think about this. So we look here, verse 17 on down, we see that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. I like that, that Moses includes this here as he writes by inspiration of the Holy Ghost of God here in Exodus 13. Even though that, that way was near. That's a fancy way of saying this. It was closer. It was easier. How many of you have ever used a GPS before, right? Now, I like having my, my GPS every now and again. It helps you, right? But there's sometimes you just go, oh, this thing don't, this thing don't know what it's doing. It don't know these, these, uh, these woods and these shortcuts and all these back roads and things like it thinks it does. Now, here's what we do know. The moment you put in an address or a place you want to go, right? Say from right here in Hillsville, you say, you know what? I want to go down to Cracker Barrel and Mount Airy, but I don't know how to get there, right? 
Now, that's probably none of you out there tonight. We, we know where all of our Cracker Barrels are. We got them memorized in the back of our head. Now, here, here's what we got. What we're going to do is you're going to plug that into the GPS, Cracker Barrel Mount Airy. You're going to hit go, and you're going to hit start, and you know what it's going to do? It's going to take you the shortest route to that Cracker Barrel. Is the shortest route always the best? Is the fastest route always the best? No. You ever drive on a trip, and Kim and I do this often, right? We sort of play this risk game sometimes. You're going on vacation or on a trip somewhere, and you're using the GPS, and you got it up on the dash, and it says, found a new route, faster, easier, with no delays. And you're like, would you like to take it? Yeah, that sounds great. We hit that, and you know what happens? This happened to us last year, coming back from Michigan, right? We're coming back, and it said, faster, easier route. We're like, you got that right. Let's get home, baby. All right. Well, an extra two hours later, what the GPS didn't see is that they were doing construction for like 10 miles through the backwoods of West Virginia where it was taking us through. Yeah, it was fun, right? No, it wasn't fun. I thought, we're never going to get here. We stopped as soon as we got out of the traffic because we'd been sitting in it for so long. We're off in the middle of nowhere. I mean, could not believe it. You know what we both said? That's the last time we take the GPS up on that offer of, would you like the easier route? We said, never again. Now she says, would you like the easier route? And we say, no, leave us alone. Quit talking to us. Tell us when we got to turn, that's it. If we need anything else, we'll talk to you. We'll have our people call your people. I say all that because you and I, we look at this and God says, you know, there's a faster route to the promised land. How many of y'all ever heard, and this is true, you look geographically, you know how long it would have taken them if they just keep on trucking to the promised land in the easiest way? Maybe two weeks, right? That's if they stop and have to go to Sheets or Bojangles or something, right? Wouldn't have taken long at all. Ended up taking them 40 years. Not because God made some wrong turns, but because they did. And here's what we find. Look, look with me here. Although that was near, for God said, lest peradventure the people repent, when they see war and they return to Egypt. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. Which one's more dangerous? Crossing a sea or crossing and dodging the armies of the Philistines? Now you and I right now with all of our battle tactics and planning, let's do this tonight. How many of you think, without knowing the rest of the account of the Bible, how do you think it would be easier to try to sneak past the Philistines? It's a faster route. That's what I'm taking, right? We can lose a few folks. They'll slow us down anyways, right? How do you think, and, and you guys are the spiritual ones, we should go across the Red Sea, right? All right. Of course, right? <laughs> how many of you are just the Israelite with your staff just along for the ride? Just going, I'm getting out of here, right? That's it. Hook me up to a wagon, right? Let me know when we get, are we there yet, right? You think about this. Either way is going to be awfully difficult. This is why it's called an exodus. It is God delivering His people 
exiting them out of bondage. Now, God led them through the way of wilderness. This is not done by chance or accident or mistake. Guzik writes a little bit about this. The coastal route called Via Maris, known as the Way of the Sea, was the shortest uh, and most common way to go from Egypt to Canaan. Yet it was also the road where the Egyptians, you know, Egypt's military outposts were. God knew the people of Israel were not ready to face this yet, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. as the idea of whether they repent. Right? We'll just go back to Egypt, right? So he led them a different way. Should have been easy for the Israelites to think that the Via Maris was the way to go. It had good, easy roads, the shortest distance. It was a trade route, so food and water could be bought. But the dangers of the way were too great, though they could not see them. God anticipated dangers they could not see. You ever been in that wilderness? You ever thought that you're in the wilderness because God is seeking to protect you and not hurt you? You ever realize this? And, and perhaps we all need this moment of clarity where God takes us by way of wilderness because there is greater danger outside of it. Because there is a greater danger on the easy way. On the way in which we know. On the way that seemeth right to a man in his own eyes. The broad way is a much easier way to travel this life, you know. The narrow way is difficult. It is painful oftentimes. Filled with peril. Filled with discouragement. But yet, as we travel this pilgrim way to the celestial city, if you will, while we go through tragedy and difficulty and trial and moments of suffering and temptation, yet we find that when we make it, we will see that God's hand was moving us all along the way. You and I never see God's providence before a trial and during the trial. We always say that God was providential after we've made it past the Red Sea, past the armies, and into the Promised Land. You and I only see God's providence maybe even years later where we go, you know, had it not been for the Lord. Had it not been for God doing this at this time or keeping me from this, who knows where my life would be. But see, God sees providence from before let there be light. God sees the providence of every wilderness suffering and trial that you've gone through long before you were even formed by His very hands. But from the human perspective, providence is only providence after the fact. When it turns out the way we like it. <laughs> when we know that we're delivered. When we know it's going to be okay. God's hand leads His people often through the wilderness for their safety as well as the sanctifying process that can only come in the wilderness. A little bit like Job this morning. Job had everything going pretty good, didn't he? Right? As long as things keep going like that, I believe Job certainly still would have continued down his, his road, but Job's going to learn an awful lot of lessons throughout that book, doesn't he? An awful lot of lessons about himself, about the things of this world, and about God, the God that he serves, the God that he knows, the God that he loves, the God who will put him through the ringer to display his glory, but as well to sanctify Job through the whole process because we can rest assured that the wilderness is not only to protect us from the armies of Egypt or the Philistines or anyone else for that matter, but it is to protect us from our own sinfulness. It is to uh, purify us from our sinfulness. It is to sanctify us away from the world of Egypt and to set us apart, to sanctify us unto God's use. The wilderness is purposeful 
And it is wonderful if we realize that it's a journey of God's hand leading His dear children along. Some lessons can only be learned through the great trial and difficulty and even suffering. And I would say especially when we think of all lessons of faith are truly learned through suffering and oftentimes failure. You don't believe me? Go read Hebrews 11. And then go read the whole Old Testament. And then once you've read the Old Testament, I want you to read about the life of Jesus, His earthly ministry. And if that's not enough to convince you, then go read about the apostles. Go read through the rest of the book of Revelation. See what things are going to happen coming down the pike for the many martyrs that will die for the cause of Christ. And then if that's not enough for you, go read church history. Go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Go read all of these things that show that for centuries, not only has God's hand led His people, but has often led His people through the furnace of affliction to His glory, to His honor, and for the furtherance of the Gospel. That His children would shine brightest in the darkness of the wilderness. The wilderness is good because of the work God does in us, through us, and for us in it. If it wasn't for the wilderness of your life, we wouldn't know to trust His grace, His promises. We wouldn't need His grace or His promises. We wouldn't need His mercy. We wouldn't need those things because if everything's going smoothly, and I don't really need to trust Him that much, do I? When everything is going according to my plan, then I don't need to trust in His. I just assume that when everything is going according to my plan, that it must be going according to His plan. What if His plan was the wilderness? Israel made the wilderness something that it was never supposed to be. You and I make our suffering and our trials and our wilderness something that it's never supposed to be. It's meant for our good and for His glory. And instead, we turn it, as we'll see later on as we go through a little bit of their account here, that we turn it into treachery and we turn it into woe is me and everything is so bad in my life and I was just better off in Egypt. You know, I, I had this little spot on the river. You know, sure, the boss was a, a, was a jerk, but you know, the pay wasn't good as a slave, but, but God's work in the wilderness is far greater. The fleshly response to trials is that we're better off in Egypt. The fleshly response to trials is that the wilderness is a horrible place. Yet we find that God has moved His people from start to finish through the wilderness and continues to do that until He establishes His kingdom on the earth. God's providence remembers as well in verse 19 and 20, it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and he shall carry up my bones away hence from you. God promises that. Joseph prophesies that. And here Moses fulfills it. And they, they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. You and I are fine with the wilderness as long as we're just on the edge of it. The moment we have to go into the depth of the forest or the dry heat of the desert, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where faith is shown. That's where faith is built in the wilderness, not on the edge of it. Matter of fact, I would say this. 
as we said earlier and asked earlier, how many of you were in the wilderness? And some of you, I could tell you were raising your hand inside like, yes, that's me. And then others, how many of you are not in the wilderness right now? If you're not in the wilderness right now, you want to know where you are? You're just on the edge. We never make it too far from the wilderness in this life, do we? The Lord gives us glimpses of the promised land. He gives us moments of reprieve. And then we go back into the wilderness and we're able to go a little bit further and a little bit further and then a little bit further because one day we won't have to go back in it. One day that journey in the wilderness is complete and one day, I believe it's the day that the Lord takes us home, we'll go from the edge of the wilderness to the edge of the throne. We won't have to go back into that wilderness again. That's what we're looking forward to. Now, as we bring this and wrap this and try to land this plane here, we're going to see God's presence in all of this. All of us tonight, theologically, would say that we believe that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and ever-present. That means this, by the way. Not only that He knows about your past and your future and your present, but that He is there abiding and residing in all of eternity, past, present, and future. He is outside of the thought process of time, space, and matter, and energy that you and I think of and contemplate everything in. You and I, we only see from our perspective and point of view, which is only a humanistic point of view and perspective, whereas God, His ways are not our ways. He is, he is this, right? You and I are... Take, everyone, everyone got your Bible in your hand? Here's what I want you to do. Hold your Bible in one hand and take, a, take your pointer finger. That's what that thing's for. Not point at people, all right? I want you to take your pointer finger and I want you to point somewhere on your Bible. Go. All right, you see where your finger is? That is your perspective. Now, can your finger tell me John 3.16? No, it can't. Can your finger tell me the end of Revelation? No. Can your finger talk about the concordance in the back of your Bible or the references at the bottom of your page? Can it describe the maps? Nope. Can it talk about the binding? Can it talk about the outside, if it's leather, if it's soft? If Nope. Why? Because it only knows what it can know. Where God goes, He's got the whole thing. He's present on every page. Present upon every page of this Bible and present upon every page of your life. God's presence is enough. So just because we only see what's on our current page does not mean that God is not the one still flipping our pages, writing our story, writing our journey, and ultimately bringing it about to our end for our good and His glory. And here's what we find in verse 21 and 22. We see the familiar phraseology that we're going to see here in just a moment about the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We find that the presence of God is with His people, both leading them into the wilderness, through the wilderness, and eventually out of the wilderness. It is God who leads them. Who's the leader of the Israelites? Not Moses. 
not Aaron, not anybody else. It is God and God alone. There is never a time when God is not present with His people. There are only times where you and I don't see, feel, or believe that He is present with His people. You and I want to see the cloud and the pillar of fire at all times, but our eyes of faith often fail and we don't always see. We don't always feel His nearness. We don't always feel His touch of His hand. Yet, we can rest assured that He is just as much with us as He ever was. God's presence is the focus of all of the Bible. Of all of eternity. It begins with God's presence. You say, well, what do you mean? You ever read Genesis 1-1? What does it say? In the beginning, God. There's His presence. You ever read Revelation? You ever read the last two chapters of it? What do we find? And He dwells there with His people. And He shall dwell there in the city. He shall dwell forever and forever and forever. And we will dwell with Him forever and forever and forever. God's presence is what begins and ends all of human history. And it is the focal point even of the Gospel that God's presence put on flesh dwelt among us, that's His presence yet still, died, rose again, ascended, gave uh, all believers His Holy Spirit the moment of their salvation, and promises to call us up unto Himself. So notice this, that there's never a time in your life, dear Christian, where God is not with you. That's the beauty. God's presence is the motivation and very means of our existence. It is why we exist. It is what we exist for. And it is the very means of how we live day to day. If God was not present with you day to day, moment by moment, we would crumble. I'm not just talking about emotionally or spiritually, but even physically, the very fact that God is with us, keeping us breathing. Believe it or not, it's not the prescriptions. It's not your vitamins. It's not your stretching or your genetic makeup. It is that God is with you. That's it. Now here's what we find. We see, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them, uh, to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. I love on a bright, sunshiny day to have a cloud block the sun. You know why? It makes it cool. I love cutting the grass and on the backyard, and it's a wilderness out there, right? I'm out there 40 days, 40 nights at a time when I'm cutting grass, pushing, right? You can ask Tony about it, right? <laughs> you kind of circle back a few times. <laughs> but here's what happens. A cloud will come by and block the sun, and man, it's, it's like revival. I mean, Lord, thank you for that cloud. <laughs> Never thought I'd thank the Lord for so much of a cloud in my life. But then you ever, you ever see this in a nighttime? You, you want to look at the stars and you want to be able to see a little bit at night and it's cloudy. You go, oh, well, I can't see nothing because of the clouds. It's blocking out all the light that's there. But then you get you a full moon, you get you no clouds, and, and, and you can see forever, it seems like, just like it's daytime. But now imagine, not only is the stars out and the moon is out, but this pillar of fire. 
this column of fire is leading the way. Now, I love sitting around a campfire. I love sitting around the fire and watching it, it burn down, the warmth of it, the sound, the smell. Now imagine God's abiding presence hovering there. What could be more assuring to the believer, but also more frightening to the one who is outside that camp? Much like Moses, who was deathly afraid of that burning bush and afraid to look upon God, imagine others who are looking and going, what is that? I've never seen fire just float in the air before and hover over a people without consuming them, and yet they seem to be perfectly at peace. Because there's peace in the wilderness simply knowing that God is there with us. We often quote Psalm 23. But what makes Psalm 23 so beautiful? What makes the valley of the shadow of death bearable? Thou art with me. That's it. Now the pillar of cloud by day, this is His abiding glory pillar cloud of God proving His provided presence and protection to all who are under it by faith. It is a testimony not only to those who are protected by His presence, but as well a warning to all who would come against Him and His people. It sets them apart. No other nation has this cloud of Shekinah glory. No other people group has the cloud of God's glory. Only God's people because He's leading them, protecting them, providing for them. He is present with them alone. Then at night, what happens? Does the cloud go away? No, we have a pillar of fire. Even more awe-inspiring, it seems, that God is a consuming fire and a light unto His people. The fire of God reminds those who trust in Him that He will purify and provide for them and as well protect them, and of course, still yet acts as a warning to all those who would come against those who are His. But God never took His presence away. Notice this. He took not away the pillar of a cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The most frightening thing in the wilderness for the children of Israel would not have been an army of a million soldiers standing across from them. It would have been that the cloud disappeared, or that the fire went out. I want to read for us a couple of verses here. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us this. First of all, chapter 12 tells us, for our God is a consuming fire. But then chapter 13 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that, when, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who hath spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. We ought not dread the wilderness, nor question why we're in the wilderness. We should expect the wilderness, embrace the wilderness for the work that God is doing through it. We are to remember that God's will is still His will in the wilderness, and often His will is the wilderness. And that His will will be done through the wilderness. We're to learn to trust Him in it. Because if I can't trust God, and those times where I need to trust Him the most, 
that I'm going to be really hurting. And I'll miss the whole point of the promised land in the first place. We're to trust Him in the wilderness. Because ultimately the wilderness is still better than Egypt, isn't it? I'll take the wilderness as a saved man, knowing that God is with me over being lost and still yet in bondage in Egypt. God has delivered us from much. God is still yet delivering us from much. But we can trust in this, that God is delivering. And He often does so, not merely in spite of the wilderness, but in it, through it, because of it. It is God's will that we would live in the wilderness. If it wasn't, let me tell you what the Christian life would be without the wilderness. You ready? Here it is. It's really short and simple, so don't miss it. Don't even blink. Breathe, though. Don't, just don't blink. Christian life would be this. I got saved. Went to heaven. That would be the Christian life. And that's not much of a testimony of God's glory, is it? it it's nice for us because we go immediately to heaven. But what we find is that God goes, I've saved you from everything that's behind you and everything that's before you and everything that you're going to go through to be with me on the other side. And I'm not just going to be waiting for you on the other side, but I'm going to lead you through the rest of your life, though a wilderness it may be, to bring you into glory where you will see me and know me and abide with me forever. The easiest way to abide with the Lord then is to go ahead and start abiding with Him now. May we learn that He is using the wilderness of our life for things that we often do not see. But here's the point of the matter. We don't have to see. We must simply trust. So may we learn to trust the Lord in the wilderness. Let's pray. God, we love you. We want to thank you for this time. We're grateful for your word. Grateful that we can trust you in all times and circumstances. Lord, give us faith. Uh, give us the ability to trust you during these times of trials and to see uh, with our eyes of faith the greater work that you're doing and trusting that it is your hand that is guiding us and leading us and providing for us every step of the way. Lord, help us to not waste the wilderness, but to embrace it and to see all that you do and all that you would have us to do while we're yet in it until we get to see you face to face, Lord, that we would glorify you and honor you and that we would live by faith and not by sight, that we would live by faith uh, to glorify your name, to be salt and light in this world that you've called us to live. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this night. Go with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.